0: Welcome to Dangerous Wisdom, a journey into mystery and a gateway to the mind of nature and the nature of mind. This is Dr. Nikos, your friendly neighborhood soul doctor, happy to be here with you so that together we can create a culture of wisdom, love, and beauty. Auspicious interbeing to you and yours, my friends, Coinos Hermes, and a deep bow to Sophia that is Gaia Sophia and Cosmic Sophia, this is a contemplation for everyone, a series of contemplations for everyone. It's an incredibly important series because the idea of ecological thinking, as we will approach it, relates to the basic question of why we have so many problems in the world and how we can resolve them. And it also relates to the nature of mind and the mind of nature. In other words, this series is about what we are. We may debate about certain aspects of our world. Sometimes we debate about a lot of the aspects of our world. We debate endlessly. But we do have pollution that we can recognize. We have wars that we can recognize. Extinction that we can recognize. Famine, water shortages... Severe weather events, shocking inequality, unconscionable injustice, in addition to our concerns about nuclear threats and the potential threats of what we refer to as artificial intelligence. This is not like a scare fest or doom and gloom thing. It's just, let's recognize we have some things, we have some challenges. That's okay. That's the first step. We have to look in the mirror. And we can have a better world. That's not a question. We didn't need somebody like Bill Gates... Or Hannah Ritchie to tell us that we might be able to become sustainable. That's always been part of what the wisdom traditions have tried to teach us. We can live well with this world. So that's an old story, that we could become attuned to this world and feel really at home and thrive. And we could have more peace and we could have more creativity, more beauty, more wisdom, more love. But we have to recognize our problems and then deal with them. That's, that's it. It's just like anything else. And some of our best scientists seem concerned with some of these things that I just mentioned. The militaries of the world most definitely have these issues on their radar. The U.S. military is concerned about these issues. And some people refer to all of this together as a polycrisis. It's a fancy word. Polycrisis just means there's a whole bunch of problems. And they seem like a crisis Potential turning point. That's what a crisis is. We sometimes think a crisis is just an emergency, but the idea of a crisis is that it is a turning point that could go either way. And we could have it go in a positive direction. That's what we'd like to do. Think through that in this series. How do we have it go in a good direction? Some people try to brush it off, though. We get really freaked out. We think to, to look at the problems is just doom and gloom, but that's just what we have to do as human beings. If we're in a relationship and one person is unhappy because of something, we don't pretend that they aren't unhappy or try to deny their experience. We say, well, what's up? Tell me. Let's talk. We can figure it out, but we have to look at it. And it it won't do to declare we're already doing everything we need to do to make the world a truly better place. And even if we reject the notion that we face a crisis... Independently of whether we face one crisis, a polycrisis, do we know how to make the world a better place in accord with our highest values and our most sacred ideals? That's what we want to ask. In relation to that question, we need to see that from another perspective in this series on ecological thinking, we're asking the most essential questions we can ask. So even aside from things we might be concerned about, The real heart of philosophy is alive here. We're asking, what are we? What is this world we live in? How do we live well together? These are central questions of ecological thinking as we will understand it and inquire into it in this series. So although you might assume you have no time or interest in ecological thinking or systems thinking, This series is exactly for you. We are ecological beings. So ecological thinking is not only our only rational choice, so to speak. It's a set of choices, really, because it doesn't confine us to one thing, but it's also about our creativity. So it is the direction of rationality and creativity, but it is also the direction of our birthright and an ethical imperative of the highest order, fully overlapping the basic questions of spirituality, philosophy, science, politics. Resisting ecological thinking means resisting what we are. So in this contemplation, in this series, we're going to get to the heart of some exceptionally important ideas, Ideas that can begin to shift our perception and action in the world. This is a very pragmatic series, even though we have to deal with some nuanced ideas. But doing so, if we engage with this inquiry, it can shift our perception and action in the world, helping us to live better. That's what we want, to live better, to love better, to realize the fullest potentials of ourselves and our world. Now, there's been a good bit of talk. I would say a lot of people are talking about systems thinking and ecology. I see it more and more. And we will endeavor to take a wisdom-based approach to introducing some of the basic concepts of ecological thinking. And for us, that means philosophical thinking. Ecological thinking is philosophical thinking. If we care about wisdom, love, or beauty in any of their forms. So maybe for you, you wouldn't say those three words. Maybe you would say learning, insight, creativity, compassion. You might say lots of things that would be maybe a different way of putting wisdom, love, and beauty. But if we care about those in any of their forms, our family, our friends, anything we care about, prompts us to care about ecological thinking, which has to do with our whole way of living in the world. If you have experience with systems thinking and ecology, our work together here will bring new insights, I hope. That's our aim, because this is a wisdom-based approach. So if you have experience with the science approach, or even someone else's idea of a wisdom-based approach, this should have something fresh in it for you if you have more recently begun to get serious about ecology, philosophy, or systems, our work together will hopefully serve as a good foundation. And we could go in the other direction. Maybe you've thought about philosophy and spirituality but haven't connected it to ecology. And so wherever you're coming from, advanced in ecology, oh, this could still be new because what about the philosophical ideas? New to ecology, oh, well, maybe I could take a philosophical approach, as a foundation, or very experienced in philosophy. Okay, how does it connect to ecology? Or new to philosophy? Ha! Huh? maybe this is the way to begin to think about philosophy, spirituality, and so on. But maybe we need a note about why you would want to listen to a philosopher's introduction to ecological thinking. Why would we want a wisdom-based approach? Isn't ecology a science? Isn't systems analysis a scientific and indeed mathematical endeavor? We want to suggest, and we have to think through it over the whole course of the series, but we suggest that science won't cut it. It's not enough. Because we need a holistic practice of life. Science in the dominant culture, as we practice science and think about science in the dominant culture, it cannot guide our life. We need philosophy for that. If you are familiar with ecological science or systems thinking, that means that hopefully you'll hear things you never heard before, and especially maybe a constellation, or we could say an ecology, of ideas that you've never encountered before. And on the other hand, if you have never encountered system science, if you haven't done a formal study, taken a course in college or one of the online courses that are offered now by so many people, if you haven't done that, this might be a great place to start. It can give you a spiritual feel for it, something like the feeling of dancing. And that's what we need. We need to become good dancers in this world, dancers with this world, being able to embrace the world and dance. Practicing with the spirit of a dancer doesn't mean we won't feel uncomfortable sometimes or that our mind won't get pushed or provoked. The experience of confusion we encounter in authentic philosophical matters indicates we have started down a path that goes into the unknown. And naturally, we don't understand that unknown. Now, instead of giving up and saying, this is abstract or this is intellectual or this is over my head, We could take the confusion and discomfort as a sign that something good is happening. That's not always easy. I see this pretty consistently. And so since I see it consistently, I can imagine some of my students or clients are saying, wait a second, he was just saying this to me. And no, this is not about you. This is just that it happens. It's okay. It's the journey into wisdom, love, and beauty. If we work with it skillfully, we can enter the unknown, and we need that. We really need to enter the unknown in order to evolve. And it's going to feel a little precarious and uncertain and confusing and frustrating at times. That's all okay. It doesn't have to, of course. We might be really good at, at taking it and saying, oh, yes, this is where the learning is. But we have to change what the experience signifies to us. We usually take any kind of confusion, discomfort as, wait, this there's something wrong with this. This isn't being done the right way. I'm confused. This isn't right. And we may le- try to leave the situation in a thousand ways. Instead, it could be a sign that we receive a saying, oh, this is the right track. I was just listening to a person recently talking about how they went and got, they were a, a practicing psychologist and then encountered a text about Buddhist philosophy, and happened to be written by the Dalai Lama, they said they didn't understand a single word. Really, they they were reading this book, and they understood zero. That's what they felt, zero. And so they decided to apply to a PhD program in Tibetan studies, because they said, I'm going to understand this. What a beautiful way to respond to confusion. Utter confusion. It just felt, I don't know anything about what's in this book. And so we can try to practice with that spirit. Since ecological thinking is so important and also so foreign to us, we will need to remind ourselves that we have to practice patience, we need to keep going, we need to find out how things unfold. What doesn't make sense at one point in the path will make sense when we go further and we turn back and we see the wider perspective that our climbing afforded us, you know, we're spiraling, really. And each revolution around that spiral is just a broader and wider and deeper perspective. So this is all natural. It's just how it is. Now, I'd like to say a little bit more about our basic framework and why we need a philosophical or spiritual approach. But actually, I think we can leave further reflections for an additional contemplation. I do think they're important, but, but let's see if we can move on for now. And I'll invite you to look for another contemplation about philosophy versus science, so to speak. Or sometimes what I think, I, I there's a philosopher named Evan Thompson who recently published a book, well, not that recent, but some a few years ago, not so long ago, he wrote a book called Why I'm Not a Buddhist, and I Wanted to write a book called Why I'm Not a Scientist, you know, because he's, he has a very rosy picture of science, or kind of. He was also very critical of science, which is interesting. But his way of talking about it in that book is, uh, I think, not quite as critical, even though I know he has critical reflections. So we're going to talk about maybe what, why philosophy is so important, even in relation to what seems like a scientific topic. But suffice it to say for now, If we contemplated ecologies here the way everybody else does, I don't think it would help as much. We need to try to have a deliberately wisdom-based approach. And since we want to take a wisdom-based approach to these essential matters, let's first define wisdom in an initial way. I recently was talking to somebody who said, you talk about wisdom a lot, but you don't define it. But in the very thing that this person was referencing, I did give this definition. And they just might not have registered that this is a good basic definition. Wisdom is what works. What actually functions in our lives and in our world without causing new problems or merely moving problems around. The wisdom traditions have always offered a path to holistic well-being true happiness and peace, and excellence, the realization of our potential, excellence that encompasses our fullest potential. Whatever you do in this world, wisdom is the way to do it better. Whatever challenge you face, whatever suffering you experience, whatever inspiration you seek or want to take care of, wisdom offers the best way forward. Whatever beings you love, wisdom is how to love and care for them. Now we're going to try to think about ecological wisdom. It's a bit of a dense subject matter. In some sense, we can call ecology the queen of the sciences. That's how we could think about ecology. Once we begin to understand the non-duality of spiritual and ecological reality, we might sense a lot of profundity in that name. Queen of sciences. Ecology is a Sophianic science, Sophia, wisdom, a Gaia Scienza, which in another contemplation we've mentioned that idea and we spelled it in two ways. Gaia Scienza is G-A-I-A, that is earth science, and G-A-Y-A, joyful science. That's the Sophianic science. So we're trying to shift even our notion of science as we think about a wisdom-based approach to the queen of sciences. Now we can mention four things right away that also might help us framing. First, wisdom teaches the difference between systems and holism, and wisdom teaches us how to move from and toward holism rather than to practice so-called systems thinking. So that's one important thing to keep in mind, because again, there are lots of There are people who talk about systems and courses on systems thinking, and it's not clear that they're rooted in wisdom. And wisdom invites a discernment between systems and holism. And it invites us to try to move from and toward holism. And that orientation is usually missing Secondly, wisdom explains why individuals, groups, organizations, and cultures create unintended negative outcomes and unintended negative side effects. So that's the difference. Remember, wisdom is what works without the unintended negative side effects, negative outcomes. I I intended to do something positive and then caused a problem. People intended to, in some way, help to make money, to create technology by producing CFCs the chlorofluorocarbons, but then they made a hole in the ozone layer. So that's an, that was not wise then because it was an unintended negative outcome, negative side effect. Wisdom also explains why our attempts at improvement of our self and world often create only partial benefits while creating many harms, and that's the self-help catastrophe that we've talked about. We want to feel better. We get on a plane to go on a yoga retreat somewhere in Tahiti or something, and that means that we create a lot more pollution and a lot more carbon and resource consumption, carbon emissions, resource consumption. And so, and we may only have partial benefits. We feel a little bit better, but then we go back to our life and it's not quite working. And so that's the third kind of framing point. And a fourth point wisdom offers us a vitalizing way forward so that we can cultivate the whole of life onward. In mutual nourishment, mutual illumination, and mutual liberation. The wisdom traditions give us our best chance of practicing and realizing a rejuvenative, regenerative, healing, and transformative kind of thinking that we can call ecological thinking. So these are just some of the things to keep in mind. Why am I listening to this? Well, because you might wonder. Why do we have the problems we have? How do we solve them? Whether they're personal, maybe it's an organization you belong to, your family, your own life. How do we succeed? And how do we succeed in a way in which our success is mutual with the community of life? We need wisdom even more than we need what we in the dominant culture refer to as science. We're trying to shift the science, so we're we're saying, let's not give up science, we don't want to abandon science, But, but the way we do science is, right now, not as important as wisdom. So we don't throw science out, but we have to recognize that wisdom gives us better guidance overall, so if we had to, if we really someone forced us, okay, pick science or wisdom, we would pick wisdom. But the ideal is just to bring science more in attunement with wisdom, to make our science more holistic. Wisdom teaches us that we lack ecological awareness and insight, and we operate under significant delusion and ignorance, which is not just a lack of knowledge, but an active misknowing of reality, and we're going to talk about that. That's an important discernment. There's a difference there. I don't know. You're listening right now. Hello, you. I don't know what color shirt you're wearing right now. I don't know if you're in a pair of shoes or a pair of slippers. I don't know if you're listening in your car or you're on your couch with a nice cup of tea. I don't know. Is it a cup of tea? Those are things I don't know. So that's a kind of ignorance that's just I don't know. But that's not the human ignorance that creates our problems, really. Our problem is that we actively miss know reality. That when I observe you, I actively misknow what you are. And the wisdom traditions want to liberate us from that. And that active misknowing explains why we create unintended negative side effects and outcomes, even in cases where we intend to help. This is one of the terrible things about our situation. We try to do good, and we end up not doing good. We have really nice values. If we sit and think, oh, what do I really value? I value love, I value learning, I value community, I value diversity, whatever I value. But then our activity in the world often arises out of attunement with those values. We're kind of incoherent. And wisdom teaches us that typical systems discussions just won't suffice for getting out of these challenges. When we speak about ecological or systems science from a wisdom-based perspective, it sounds a little different, and the little differences add up to a major paradigm shift. We still cover the same basic ground, so you will begin to recognize a few terms and concepts if you have had some exposure to systems science. We're going to have some of those terms that are going to be here, and they're important. If this contemplation happens to mark a kind of introduction to systems thinking or ecological thinking for you, And, in fact, even if you have a lot of experience, please practice patience. Genuine ecological thinking transcends our typical habits of thought, speech, and action. We have to enter the space of the unknown. I know, that's going to be like a mantra for us. But at least some aspects will make sense after an initial complete work-through. I think even within each episode, some things, there'll be glimmers of sense you know, it's not just going to be, oh, I won't understand anything for the, until the end of the series. No. But when the confusion comes, just, just stay with things. You might have to listen a few times, but just try to get through a whole episode and then go back. And then maybe get through two episodes and then maybe you have to go back to parts of it. It's okay. And from this foundation we're going to lay, you can expand your education in so many different ways. We just want to introduce ourselves to very important basic things. So, for those of you new to ecological or systems thinking, here are some of the key words that you might pay special attention to, you might listen out for, because these are terms that would appear in a scientific discussion or standard discussion, you know, organizations, corporations, everybody wants to do, systems thinking. And these are some of the words that they might have, some words on this list, I'm just going to read you a little list, they might not appear, and that might be a problem, but maybe they do. And if you are already somewhat scientifically inclined and you have some, some exposure to these ideas, you'll recognize these words. So you'll think, oh, he, he is going to talk about the, some of the major ideas. Now, here are some of them. Organism, ecology, state, not as in the United States and the state of Pennsylvania or something, but a state as in, a, you know, what state are you in? flow, input, output, process, randomness, complexity, adaptation, collapse, chaos, feedback loop, information, thinking, values, intentions, emergence, analysis, synthesis, isolation of variables, integration of variables, facultative systems, obligate systems. Don't panic. You might be thinking, oh, my goodness. What in the world? This is now gobbledygook. We're just mentioning some words that are going to become clear. And we'll try to really deal with many of these, maybe all of them. And there's a few more important terms, interaction, transaction, linear, nonlinear, mutuality, interwovenness. If you stay with this series, we will get to most of these terms in a way that you can understand them, really, enough to begin to see yourself and your world in a new light. It's not going to be technical. I mean, we'll have some things that we want to look at critically and carefully, but it's not going to be some kind of graduate level course in systems theory. That's not what we're doing here. Remember, it's more like a feel. We want to get the feeling of the dance, the experience of the dance, even if we still recognize we're not Ginger Rogers or Fred Astaire or Gene Kelly, you know, or I would pick tango people. We're not Pablo Verón, or somebody like that, Juan Carlos Copez, Gavito, all my heroes. Okay, now we do need a few more caveats. I already had this one caveat, that just don't panic. Oh my goodness, facultative system, obligate system, that just sounds, it's, it's going to be fine. But some of these words have become buzzwords, and their capacity for helping us can get greatly reduced in that process, just when something becomes a buzzword. We start to mistake the words for the reality. These words cannot save us. They only point us along our path. We need to learn the stories, songs, and dances of the world, not simply create a collection of words and concepts. To the extent that these words can help us, these concepts, we nevertheless cannot cover all of them in great detail. So they function mostly almost like markers, path markers. Key concepts in a more technical scientific description of ecology's systems and the cosmos in general, yes, that's what they are scientifically. For us, they're more like path markers. and It's because we're not taking some kind of highly technical approach. Rather, we will take this philosophical approach that aligns with the science. We're not just ignoring it. We're not making things up. And in fact, we act, we want to go beyond the science so that we can actually help each other and help the world. The science doesn't do enough to help us live well and feel at home in the world. And that's why the philosophy matters much more than the science. And in some ways, actually, in very important ways, the science is simply catching up with the teachings of spiritual geniuses across time and culture. So indigenous traditions, non-indigenous traditions, we see these spiritual geniuses with ideas that we're going to touch on, more like in their spirit. And the science, we're going to say, is really in some way catching up to it. It's also its own way, in its own way, a spiral. I'm not trying to say the science is nothing, in other words. It does maybe deepen our understanding and give us even better perspective, but we really have to put it in its place. If we inquire together in a skillful way, it can lead to transformative insights. When we examine interwovenness, when we begin to experience the interwovenness of the world, the interwovenness of wisdom and wildness, we can begin to see things rather differently, to live and love differently, and thus to make way for these transformative insights that bring us closer to spiritual and ecological integrity. For instance, when we observe someone go to the sink and fill a glass of water, we might at first think that the water flowing out of the spigot fills the glass. Now, that's in some ways a very linear cause-and-effect relationship in which we can isolate a variable. But with a more nuanced view, we may see that the rising level of the water in the glass turns off the spigot. And the empty glass turned it on. And that little twist brings in just a bit more mutuality. Do you see that? One way of looking, I say oh. The water flowing out of the spigot fills the glass. And the other way, I say, no, the rising level of water in the glass turns off the spigot and the empty glass turned it on. And this more nuanced view can begin to liberate us from linear patterns of thought, habitual patterns of thought, and it can then also liberate us into seeing the fuller mutuality of human beings and hydrological cycles. Now, obviously not immediately, but we get there. Rather than isolating variables, we can liberate ourselves into larger ecologies of mind. We can get free of isolating a cause down to the narrow idea of turning a spigot or isolating thirst inside an organism and treating thirst as a linear cause or motive. In this broader view, thirst becomes integrated into the activity of water integrated into the activity of ecologies, integrated into the living, loving world. Filling a glass becomes emptying the sky. Emptying a glass becomes filling the sky, and the very openness of sky and water fills our drinking with the direct teachings of nature. Filling a glass reveals itself as the song of a river and the gossip of frogs. The water in our mouth tastes like the nature of reality itself, and we imbibe the medicine of life with each sip, hearing birds song and seeing the sun in the trees. We enter the intimacy of the great mystery and activate our sense of reverence for life. We fill our cup and interwovenness drinks interwovenness. We enter the sacredness of life, baptized and born anew with each moment. Washing our cup, we wash the sky and the earth. And emptying our cup, we empty our mind and pollinate the world. Now that might sound a bit much, but we, f- we will find the mythopoetic dimensions of priceless value as we enter into new ways of knowing, being, living, and loving. And this might sound to some people, this would sound abstract, the poetic expression of this interwoven nature of reality, but it isn't. And we're trying to get actually very concrete. Now don't worry, if now, you know you might be thinking, "Wait, facultative and obligated, obligate systems. that sounded complex, but now we're drinking the sky. I'm, I'm out of my depth. You're fine. It's, <laughs> we're just giving a sense of the spirit we're going to begin to approach. And Lao Tzu, I'm sure you know the Tao Te Ching. He has some beautiful chapters. Lao Tzu wrote, The supreme good is like water, which nourishes all things without trying to. It is content with the low places that people disdain. Thus, it is like the Tao. So you know how it is. Water finds itself in a gutter. It doesn't freak out. It just flows. And that's what the Tao is like, and that's what we can be like. Wait, I find myself in confusion. Oh, keep flowing. It'll clear up. Lao Tzu also wrote, Nothing in the world is as soft and yielding as water. Yet, for dissolving the hard and inflexible, nothing can surpass it. And in some ways I think of Dogen as an even more impressive sage than Lao Tzu. Deep bow to Lao Tzu, of course. And uh, Dogen is, of course, Dogen Roshi, which means Dogen Lao Tzu. He's Dogen, the old boy. And Dogen wrote the following, Quote, water arises liberated in its actual occurrence. Having no fixed nature, no independent characteristics, it arises as freedom. Water is dependent on water, and also on non-water, and thus it can never exist in bondage. Water is neither strong nor weak, neither wet nor dry, neither moving nor still, neither cold nor hot, neither being nor non-being, neither delusion nor enlightenment. Frozen, it is harder than diamond, who could break it? Melted, it is softer than milk, who could break it? This being the case, we cannot doubt the many virtues realized by water. We should study the occasion when the water of the ten directions is seen in the ten directions. This is not a study only of the time when humans or gods see water. There is a study of water seeing water. Water practices and verifies water. Hence there is a study of water, telling of water. We must bring to realization the road on which the self encounters the self. We must move back and forth along and spring off from the vital path on which the other studies and fully comprehends the other. We should realize that when water descends to earth, it becomes rivers and streams, and that the essence of rivers and streams becomes sages. Oh it's really beautiful. Dogen's mythopoetic vision that is very actually very analytical philosophical position. It's a vision of ecological. Thinking, it's an ecological vision. Now, I recommend Dogen's full essay. It's challenging, of course. It's a profound text, but also profoundly challenging text on ecological vision. It's called Mountains and Waters Sutra. Now, we're not going to get all into that. I'm giving a sense of, whoa, we could move toward this breathtaking sense of wonder and philosophical vision, and we could get closer to it right here in these contemplations. Because think about what he's saying, how beautiful to hear that water depends on water and on non-water, and thus it arises as freedom and can never exist in bondage. Why is that important? Because we humans are like that too, as we will see. Even in this contemplation we'll begin to touch that. We are liberated in our actual occurrence. Ecological thinking is the thinking of liberation. This is how we free ourselves and all beings, how we heal ourselves and our world. So just stay with it. When you listen to this kind of discussion of an introduction to ecological thinking, I can understand how a person could hear some of this and think, now wait a second, this is crazy, or this is abstract, or I don't know where we're at. We're right at the intimacy of water, at the intimacy of our own lives, which are so intimate that we instead live in abstraction. We're embedded in our own abstractions and we have to get out. And it seems like, you know, if you go to a lecture on systems thinking and somebody draws out systems maps, systems diagrams and so on, that seems very concrete. But it's not. Actually, it isn't concrete. And the reason why it isn't, and I know it seems like it is, but the reason why it isn't is because all of that gets us operating on the basis of abstraction. And it can orient us toward manipulation and control rather than attunement. Now, I'm not saying it must do those things, but it very well can. And so far, it seems like it has tended to work that way and is tending to go that way that we're going to use systems thinking for further manipulation and control. It's one of the reasons why corporations are interested in it. But we need better ways of knowing, being, living, and loving. And so our contemplation here together has to do with trying to get us out of abstraction, out of the orientation of manipulation and control. We need a shift in consciousness into more subtle practices of attunement and they are far more precise it's just that because they involve a shift in consciousness we don't know where we're going and that feels abstract so dogen is being so precise and concrete but very intimate so we get lost but even that passage will get clearer by the end of this maybe this contemplation and maybe into the second one a little bit but you're going to get clear and we use this word, we say, oh, this is abstract. It's a word we grasp after, rather ironically, the name a feeling. That's what we kind of, I think, one of the things that we do. We use the word abstraction to name a feeling of what happens when love wisdom invites us to let go of our abstractions and enter intimacy. It's just because it's, we can't grab it. What love wisdom really points to can't be grabbed And our way of working with the mind is to grasp after. That's why we use the word comprehend, right? To grasp. And since love wisdom guides us to entrances into the unknown, we don't understand and we therefore say, this is going over my head or it's so abstract. And this series, what we're talking about is the very foundation for shifting into ecological thinking, which means shifting into spiritual thinking. Shifting into wisdom, love, and beauty. Shifting into magic and mystery. And while we will definitely integrate some of those key terms, familiar to system science, as we said, that's not going to be enough. So we're going to need to integrate a little more wisdom and poetry even. (laughs) And so... I can feel a little funny, but we're going to be okay. Now we'll return to the question of how to move forward beyond introductory considerations. But for now, let's move to a question Dogen's work raises for us in an intimate way. What is an ecology? So you could almost say, hey, we've done our preface for this series, and it was a trippy introduction. Can you imagine opening a book and having such a trippy introduction. We're just trying to be honest. And give some sense of the spirit of the dance we're going to try to dance. It might be like if you ever dance tango. You know, the first time you see tango, you think, oh my goodness, what in the world is even happening? Or West Coast Swing, you know? And you see these people in tango or West Coast Swing, and they're just improvising. And you think, this is impossible. So there's that kind of feeling. And now let's get to the the rhythms and the dance steps, and how do we begin? What is an ecology? So here it is. Get ready. We're going to define it. Let us say, for our purposes, an ecology is a relative wholeness that consists of relative parts or elements, each of which can affect the behavior or activity of the wholeness, as well as the behavior or activity of other Relative elements. The relational nature of an ecology means ecologies exhibit interwovenness. While each relative element of an ecology manifests a certain degree of relative autonomy, each relative element can only affect other elements or affect the whole independence upon or as interwovenness with other elements. I know that's long. We're going to it's a mouthful and a mindful, so we're going to reflect on it. Our definition as a whole differentiates an ecology from a mere aggregate. If we throw a bunch of silverware into a drawer, we have an aggregate, but not a functioning ecology. Now, that's not too hard to understand because the forks and knives don't respond to each other. They don't influence each other except in a purely physical way. Now, we could put this in another way by saying ecologies evolve over time in a self-organizing way that seems to presence an inherent creativity, and we don't find our silverware drawer doing that when we close the drawer, open it up the next day, it's exactly the same, of course, other than the deeper impermanence that we'll get to later. Now let's think carefully about the last part of our definition. Let's start with that last part because it's quite radical. So here it is again. We said that each relative element of an ecology, because an ecology is a a relative wholeness constituted by relative elements, or parts, okay? And each of those, what we could call parts or elements, they can only affect other elements or parts or the whole on the basis of dependence upon other elements. Or we could say they can, a part can only affect another part in its interwovenness with something else, It can't just act on its own. And so, that means no part of an ecology has total dominion over the whole. The relative elements arise fully interwoven or interdependent and we can say an ecology arises as a wholeness we cannot actually divide into elements that exist independently or exist from their own side, so to speak. Okay, now let's, we'll get an example here in a second. So it's okay. You might say, oh my gosh, I'm so lost. It's okay. We're going to be all right. So, in just a second, we're going to consider, but I just want to point out that this comes with an important implication. Relatively speaking, we cannot have global control over an ecology, and we must focus on local action that nevertheless moves from and toward wholeness. So, let's consider an example. In your brain, there is no single neuron that can control all the others, or In fact, no neuron that controls some other neurons except in its dependence upon the rest of the ecology. So neurons collaborate with no controller. Each neuron responds to the activity of other neurons. And of course, there are also other cells in there, like glial cells. And the neurons can't work without the glial cells to support them. And then, of course, there's a larger ecology that, that the brain is part of. So the brain's not going to work if the heart doesn't work. Or the lungs. And scientists sometimes put this kind of emergence, of this emergent activity as bottom-up control. So they would say, oh, look, everything is happening, these neurons are just firing on a kind of local level, and then mind emerges from the bottom-up, from uh, this kind of relational dance of the neurons. Now, technically speaking, we live in a non-local cosmos, so any strong claim that ecologies operate strictly on the basis of local interactions I think seems to face challenges in our own experience, like a synchronicity. There are non-local effects that we experience that we can't explain as bottom-up control. But it does help us to avoid tyrannical currents when we think about the impossibility of any part of an ecology turning the whole into an object of knowledge and then trying to manipulate and control on that basis. We need this emphasis on local interplay and responsiveness. So here's another example. If we think this way, if we understand what this defi- this part of the definition means... It helps us understand the benefits of basic income, and it also invites us to consider the benefits of incentivizing ecological engagement together with basic income. So, for instance, we might have a basic income of $1,000 a month, and the idea is don't control what people do with it. Don't have a top-down control. Here's the money you have to do this with. You just give people the money. That's it. No strings. You don't have to pay it back. It's yours. Go. Do. Be. But then we might offer an incentive of an additional, let's say, $1,000 per month on top of that for people who spend some minimum number of time increasing biodiversity, increasing biomass, replenishing watersheds, re-regulating hydrological cycles, reducing pollution, and creating a more just and vitalizing culture. So we could easily incentivize practices such as healing and cultivating trees and forests, digging swales, helping to bring back diverse wildlife, and so on. That would be based on local needs, local responsiveness. It would require good teachers and practices, including training in permaculture, agroecology, and restoration ecology. We could also incentivize practices that facilitate real democracy. Whoa! And we could have all these things coordinated. Now, we also need to note something profound in relation to how scientists think about bottom-up activity. And you say, wait, wait, what do you mean by bottom-up? Again, it's that nothing, there's no superior place that controls the whole rest of the ecology. There's no neuron that is like the hierarchical king in your brain that says, I control all the other neurons. It doesn't happen. The neurons just relate with each other. And every neuron can only affect other neurons, or the whole, the brain as a whole, in dependence on other elements in the system. So every neuron is relational and doesn't just have its own existence and some way to manipulate and control the whole brain or the whole human. doesn't work that way. And so uh, another example many of us have seen the mesmerizing videos of large flocks of starlings flying in undulating patterns, you know, these murmurations, you've seen these beautiful undulating, and they're birds, they look like, an if from a distance it's like a sculpture, a big solid thing, but then you get close and you see it's a bunch of birds. And scientists have modeled this behavior using complexity, which means that there is no leader when, they, when we look at that from the standpoint of ecological thinking, we realize there's no bird who's designing those undulating patterns. Rather, each bird follows what we could call an interaction pattern. And that might mean, the pattern might say, you keep this distance from your neighbor at all times, and you roughly average where your neighbor seems to be going in terms of direction. And so the, the, the little, if we think of brains, even though we're, we are not into this kind of uh, reductive way of thinking of it, but, but the idea is that the brain and eyeballs of the bird automatically make these basic relational calculations. Nobody's thinking, let's make a pattern. They simply relate to one another very directly. And as they do, you get a self-organizing pattern no leader, rather a globally coherent pattern in the whole flock of birds emerges spontaneously on the basis of these little local interactions between the birds. The birds naturally move from, you could say, any old disorder into a constructive order but we find no conductor standing outside the symphony of movement telling the birds what to do in order to create this order. However, we must not forget that the birds did learn how to do this. They don't make it up out of nothing. Rather, the learning happened over countless generations in their ancestral lineage, and we don't know why. Why do birds make these patterns? For all we know, they enjoy it it might arise as an aesthetic aspect of bird culture. And it certainly arises as an aesthetic aspect of the world we share with them because we find it beautiful. And I doubt that the birds would do it if they took no joy in it. There must be some enjoyment. In relation to human culture, we need to recognize that emergent behavior of an ecology depends on the interaction patterns of the relative parts. Birds follow a basic pattern of interaction that leads to self-organizing global patterns. And we, what, what, what is that pattern? Remember that their eyeballs are registering the distance of their neighbors, and they try to keep that distance within a certain margin. If the neighbor, if the neighbor on my right as I'm flying, starts to get close, my eyeball immediately registers that, and I move to the left. If the beak of the bird to my left is going in a certain direction and the beak of the bird above me is going in another and the one to the right of me is going in a different direction, I average those out and try to head in a direction that is, generally speaking, altogether this way with my other friends. I don't have to think that through. And so these, these are just interaction patterns built in that they have learned over generations. They have these patterns, and humans do too. We are patterning beings. If we think of this patterning in relation to human psychology, we have to realize that our basic worldview, our basic intentions, our basic ethical practices, and even our quality of mind All of that will determine the way our ecologies move and the large-scale patterns that emerge. Does that make sense? So when the scientists analyze the birds, they can come up with some very simple equations about, oh, when a bird comes too close to you, you move a little bit away from it, and you point your beak in the general direction that the other birds seem to be pointing their beaks in. And it's very simple, and it's a pattern of, of interaction. It's a patterning that shapes what the bird is going to do. We humans have those patternings too, but it's not so simple as where my nose is pointed and how close you're standing to me. Our, our patterning, our interaction, relational patterning is based on a worldview. What do I think you are? What do I think the cosmos is? My basic intention. Is my basic intention, wisdom, love, and beauty? My basic ethical practices. Do I really think about what my ethical commitments are? Rehearse them, think about them. Try to practice them. Try to be honest when I screw up. And my quality of mind. Am I feeling agitated, distracted? Is my mind unstable, lacking in clarity, or have I cultivated a mind of clarity, stability, spaciousness, responsiveness? All of that is going to shape how we dance together, how we fly together, how we make our murmuration pattern. If we have a basic view of humans as selfish, if that's our basic view, the humans are basically just Selfish then we each must pursue our own self-interest. That's how it's going to work. But we also know that compassion provides a different patterning instinct, so to speak, a different set of rules we would use to evolve our ecologies onward, to shape the dance. We can make decisions on the basis of anger, fear, anxiety, and so on, but we could also make decisions on the basis of calmness, clarity, equanimity, positivity, and more. And how do humans decide which patterning to follow? They do so on the same basis as the birds, on the basis of learning, which includes education, within lifetimes and across lifetimes. The great sages and philosophers of the world have therefore always emphasized education as the fundamental basis for allowing beautiful patterns to emerge in nature and culture. Without dictators telling us what to do. We need that education and then we can collaborate in order to cultivate the whole of life onward in beautiful, graceful, and inspiring ways. So all of this shows that we already find significant implications in the definition of ecology that we gave, especially once we begin to think about how an ecology would function. So we have to go further into it. Uh, We're just at the beginning. It's okay. But notice that that definition corresponds with what Dogen was saying, too. Because Dogen was saying, why is water free? Because it can, It depends on non-water. And it also depends on water. So if you look at a river, anything that some part of the river is doing depends completely on the rest of the river. There's no, some, There's not a part of the river that's flowing independently of the rest. But the river flowing also depends on the banks. So it's the earth, the trees... If there are no trees along that river bank, the river is going to be different. The water is going to behave differently. If there are many trees along that bank, you have a different river. So Dogen was showing us, look at this guy who lived in medieval Japan, born in 1200. And he understood ecological thinking. His understanding is really mirrored. It resonates deeply with the definition we gave which if you look in textbooks about systems thinking and how you define a system, you're going to find our definitions pretty much in line with that. We have to go further. I understand it's not an easy definition. Our definition evokes wholeness. We said that an ecology is a relative wholeness, and that's a more subtle notion than we may realize. And Gregory Bateson, one of my favorite philosophers, he can help us think, I think, a little further into wholeness. In his book, Steps to an Ecology of Mind, we find the following passage. This is really good. So here's what Bateson writes, quote, Any ongoing ensemble of events and objects which has the appropriate complexity of causal circuits and the appropriate energy relations will surely show mental characteristics. So he's putting in a different way some of the lines of our definition. An ensemble of events and objects, that's what we call a relative wholeness constituted by relative parts or elements. And they're interwoven, they're relational. So here he says, which have the appropriate complexity of causal circuits, that is, they can relate with one another, affect one another. and the appropriate energy relations, that is to say, the the relations are not merely billiard balls banging up against each other or silverware jumbled in a drawer. He says that any such ongoing ensemble will surely show mental characteristics. And he continues, quote, It will compare, that is, be responsive to difference." in addition to being affected by the ordinary physical causes such as impact or force. It will process information and will inevitably be self-corrective either toward homeostatic optima or toward the maximization of certain variables. Okay, Some of that might sound complicated, but what he's saying is Any kind of ensemble like this is going to have mental characteristics and that means it's going to be responsive to difference, to what it notices as differences in the environment. So, remember those birds flying. One bird senses the difference in distance between herself and her next-door neighbor, the, the bird flying to her right. That bird gets a little closer to her. She senses it and she moves a little further away, so that she tries to maintain basically the same distance, so nobody smashes into each other, and the whole thing doesn't just go veering off into pieces. So Google it, you can find a video of these murmurations of birds, they're all moving together. They don't slam into each other, and they don't suddenly just disperse. How does that happen? Because each bird is trying to be, it's a self-corrective The whole ecology and each bird as an ecology within that whole has a self-corrective sort of process or patterning that tends toward homeostatic optima, that is a balancing optimum, or toward the maximization of certain variables. So that would be like if we were trying to maximize our learning and and our sort of mental ecology was oriented toward maximizing learning then we would keep self-correcting so as to keep learning. And then Bateson goes on a little further. He says, a bit of information, a bit, you know, like as in bites and bits, a bit of information is a difference which makes a difference. So it's a difference that matters, in other words. Such a difference as it travels and undergoes successive transformation in a circuit is an elementary idea, but most relevant in the present context, we know that no part of such an internally interactive system can have unilateral control over the remainder or over any other part. The mental characteristics are inherent or imminent in the ensemble as a whole. And we're going to go a little further. We already talked, touched on that a little bit, and I know some of it might be a little shaky. It's okay. We're going to, we're going to clarify some of the key points. Then Bateson writes, Just a little bit, we're going to go a little further. Stay with me. He writes, in no system which shows mental characteristics can any part have unilateral control over the whole. In other words, the mental characteristics of the system are imminent, not in some part, but in the system as a whole. We'll clarify that in a second. We'll just finish this last bit. Bateson writes, the significance of this conclusion appears when we ask, can a computer think? Or when we ask, is the mind in the brain? The answer to both questions will be no. That's what Bateson says. So if you've been hearing about AI and you wonder, is it intelligent? And if you've been hearing about neuroscience, is the mind the brain? Bateson says, no. He writes, a computer is self-corrective in regard to some of its internal variables. It may, for example, include thermometers or other sense organs which are affected by differences in its working temperature. So your laptop, when it gets hot, a fan comes on. So he's saying, sure, there's a self-corrective thing in there. But your computer is not a mind. So he says it would be incorrect to say that the main business of the computer... The transformation of input differences into output differences is a mental process. So it is not a mental process, but ecologies are. And that's what's key about these passages from Bateson. In our definition of an ecology, we find a new sense of mind. And we also happen to find a little critical thinking about so-called artificial intelligence. Now, there's a lot of nuance here. It's okay if this is a little shaky. We're going to it's just be patient. But we have the suggestion that all living ecologies exhibit mind. It is imminent, which means it's in the system. It's not a transcendent thing above the system. But this means that forests exhibit mind. And human beings exhibit mind in the same way which actually is not our habitual way of seeing things. We don't actually sense it that way. We don't really sense how our mind is immanent in our organism as an ecology. We don't even think of ourselves as an ecology. And we don't think of mind as immanent. We think of it as transcendent, actually. We think I, the ego, I have a mind, and this body doesn't. And we also don't see ourselves as embedded in a larger ecology which we could think of in abstract terms as organism plus environment but organism and environment are abstractions mind is immanent and that is why functionally speaking we have an unconscious it's not that there is a transcendent consciousness it's that mind is completely immanent in this ecology that you point around you walk around in and say this is me right we all do that And we say, I thought of something, or let me explain, but you aren't explaining. Mind explains, and that mind is imminent in your whole ecology. And that's why we get into misleading ideas, like the body knows. You know, that's what we start to say, the body knows things. We say that because we don't understand that mind is imminent in this whole ecology that we refer to as a body. For instance, I respect Gene Gendlin tremendously. The guy was fantastic. He's a great philosopher. But it's misleading. I would just respectfully say it's misleading to say that something called the body can interpret our dreams or can know things we don't. Because one of his books is let your body interpret your dreams or something like that. And I don't think that's the right way to look at it. I think it's better to under begin to understand that mind is imminent, and that means we find it in our total ecology and then even more broadly in the ecologies we arise with in interwovenness now that's pretty wild really when you think about it and it's why we don't habitually see ourselves that way there's this body and then i have a and then I, there's me i i have a body i have a mind and so we put this controller I am in control. But we're not in control because mind is imminent. And our conscious part, the little ego that says I, that's just a part. It cannot control the whole. And for all these reasons, it's why I sometimes say we need to worry less about becoming more embodied and practice a little bit more at becoming more ecologied That's what ecological thinking involves, and it therefore includes and transcends everything we think we seek when we try to get more into our bodies, because that's what we say, I want to get into my body. Who's getting into? I'm getting into my body. And Bateson is saying, no, you're missing it. Their mind is imminent in an ecology, a human, the thing that we call a human being, that is an ecology, and that that thing is actually a relative part in larger ecologies. Each of us is not independently existing, according to our definition of ecology. Okay, now stay with it. I know this. we're already in like deep territory, but it's going to get clearer. And we're going to have more examples. Don't worry. We're going to keep coming back to different examples to think these things through. A little while ago, we mentioned wholeness. Remember, we said a, an ecology is a relative wholeness. And we, in fact, said ecological thinking it tries to move us from and toward wholeness, which is subtle. And we also said that an ecology is characterized by interwovenness, the interwovenness of these relative parts. They're just totally... Interwoven, So that means that no part exists independently. It is totally interwoven with the other parts. So the wholeness and interwovenness that characterize the basic nature of the cosmos is alive and a love, which means it has a dynamism. And that dynamism means impermanence. There is a constant flow and flux. And all of these things apply to ecologies because they apply to the cosmos as a whole. And so the interwovenness and dynamism give rise to ecologies that evolve over time in creative, adaptive, and self-organizing ways. And they exhibit their creative patterning in a manner that involves non-linear dynamics and phase transitions. Whoa, those are tricky terms. Non-linear dynamics and phase transitions including sudden shifts or bifurcation points in their development. Now, we might get into that technical stuff a little bit later, but for now we're not going to worry about it. I just want to recognize that what nonlinear means, you see, we, we've had science for a long time that was a science of abstraction in that it, ha- it really was disconnected from our everyday life because it was very linear. And what that means is, you remember old Descartes, and he had that, we had that Cartesian coordinate system And if you have a line on that Cartesian coordinate system, remember we used to do this stuff, algebra stuff. And if you give me a function and ask me about, if I tell you where the x point is, you can automatically deduce where the y point is. You just know it because it's a linear thing. You know where it's going to end up. You say, oh, x is 5. Well, then y is 7. I know it. You can ask me for any x. x is 10 million. How about that? I instantly give you the answer. That's easy, but in a nonlinear system you can't. It's not like that. You have to run the computation over and over and over and over and over again ten million times to find out what happens if x is ten million. You can't just do a simple calculation and that makes it just as easy as oh x is five, oh y is seven, x is ten million, and I know the answer. In a nonlinear system. You don't know where it is now. And you would have to do 10 million computations to find out where it's at. But that's where life is. That's what life is like. It doesn't exist in these abstractions at the extremes where we have a high degree of order and isolation of variables at one extreme, and that's like Newtonian mechanics. And even in some ways, you know, quantum physics still can use linear math. And then we have like random systems... And we can just use statistical mechanics. So that's how we measure things like heat. Because all the molecules are bouncing kind of randomly, but we can use statistics to figure out what they're doing as an aggregate. And those are extremes of abstraction in a certain way, but life happens in this non-linear way. So all that's important when you think, oh my gosh, what is is he talking about? The important thing is to recognize that I can't just tell you immediately where a nonlinear system is going to go it has to evolve and that's how we find out where it's going to go in an important way so but for our purposes now what we want to look at are some core aspects of reality that we just touched on right we want to consider those core aspects of the the interwovenness and the dynamism which gives us that impermanence that constant flux and flow That leads to four major characteristics of ecologies that we need to recognize, and we actually find them rather difficult at times to fully accept and work with. So here are four characteristics of ecologies. We gave them a definition, and we're going to return to that definition again, and we're going to keep looking at it. We're just laying out some things, and here you're going to have some easy concepts, in a way. You're going to recognize these concepts, they're going to feel very comfortable, accessible, but they are actually really hard for us to deal with. So, the first one is precariousness, the second is uncertainty, the third is complexity, and the fourth is ambiguity. Precariousness, uncertainty, complexity, ambiguity. Memorize those, because every ecology is characterized by these four aspects. These are four characteristics of every ecology, really. And... they really these characteristics arise directly as aspects of the nature of reality, which, as we said, fundamentally involves wholeness, interwovenness, and dynamism. So that's from those. If you just have that, if you say, "Wait, reality involves wholeness and interwovenness and dynamism," so it's it's whole, and then it's a it's a there are relative wholenesses, and reality uh, overall is a wholeness. We could say. And it's characterized by interwovenness. So everything is relational. Everything is touching everything else in some way, shape, or form. You only exist because of the sun. The sun is in you. So we're interwoven with the sun. How crazy is that? And we're interwoven even with cosmic particles, cosmic rays that are coming through our planet, triggering lightning sometimes. And But it's not all Frozen interwovenness. It's not like a big uh, embroidery where everything's threaded together, but it's stuck. No, it's alive and a love. So there's a dynamism. And from those three core characteristics of the whole cosmos, really, but but those characteristics are for every ecology. And so from those three fundamental aspects, we could say, of the nature of reality, then we get these key characteristics, four characteristics of all ecologies. And that includes you and me and U.S. culture, and a forest, and so on and so on. And resistance, denial, or active misknowing in relation to any of these four characteristics gives rise to suffering. I should put an echo on that one. Suffering. Dun dun dun. The primary ignorance is ignorance of the wholeness, interwovenness, and impermanence or dynamism. So that's our primary active misknowing, is that we don't don't really sense the wholeness. We can say it intellectually, oh, I believe it's all one, it's all connected, but we don't directly sense it. And we actively cover over, in one way or another, the wholeness, interwovenness, and dynamism. And and because of that, then we can't fully, fully, fully understand these other characteristics because that fundamental ignorance will remain at whatever level of unconsciousness. So we we have to shift eventually. But uh, it's okay, because it already helps just to begin to work with these characteristics. So we work with it all together. The wisdom traditions teach us that our suffering arises from a lack of attunement with reality. And those traditions offer us ways to shift out of that and into proper attunement. And we'll, we'll go into that later. That's part of how we Start to practice good ecological thinking. But for now, we can all try to recognize the ways in which we resist, deny, or actively miss no reality. Just try to say, okay, maybe I do. So, for instance, here's an example. We might live with our, our romantic partner. Maybe you're married, maybe you're just in love with somebody, or you're putting up with somebody, whatever the situation might be. Now, we leave in the morning. Maybe it's even your dog. Four legged people. So, you live with a good friend but maybe it's your romantic partner, and you leave in the morning, you say goodbye, goodbye, my darling, and then you return home, and basically, if you really are honest, you know that you act as if they're the same person that you left. <laughs> you, <know? laughs> you say goodbye in the morning, eight hours later, you come back, or whatever it is for you, maybe it was one hour, I don't know, maybe you have an easy job, but you went out for uh, uh, one hour or eight hours, and you come back and you basically act like it's the same person. But they're not. And you act like you're the same person, but you're not. And we act as if some of the things we did that day, if, we, if you went out, you did different things, you act like some of them didn't really matter to the world as a whole. You know, I drove to work. And you act like that didn't matter to the people if you, know, you were driving to work in Ireland or, or Montana or Canada. And you took the bus, and you didn't think anything of people in Brazil or people in Africa or people in Russia or Ukraine. And you didn't think, what, what is my, my being on this bus? It's affecting people in Europe. We don't think that way. And we may behave as if the way we relate to our partner when we return home doesn't really matter to the whole. And we're saying all of this goes against the nature of reality, because if there is an impermanence and a dynamism that's real, then when you come home, this is a different person. Now, obviously, they're not completely different in the sense that you can't recognize them, but they're not the same person, and you're not the same person. And we're just trying to let, open ourselves a little bit to the suggestion that at a very deep level, We don't live in attunement with reality, and that's the source of our problems. That's what the wisdom traditions tell us. It's the basic teaching. And our goal is to learn a little about how we can better attune. Ecological thinking is thinking in attunement with reality. It's thinking the way nature works. Now, as part of attuning with reality, we need to understand that reality has an implicit or implicate order and a wholeness that can never become an object of knowledge. Never. We can participate with reality in such a way that we co-discover and co-create the emergence of that implicate order, that implicit order, but we cannot turn it into an object of knowledge, which means we cannot truly manipulate and control the world. We can't do it. This resistance to becoming an object of knowledge goes together with the inherent impermanence, precariousness, and uncertainty of our lives. Impermanence, precariousness, and uncertainty arise because of the interwovenness and its dynamism and holism. And this means everything affects everything all the time even if those effects seem extremely subtle or invisible to us. And we can't get ground under our feet in this kind of reality. And whoa, man, that's hard to deal with sometimes, that we just can't get ground under our feet. Why? Because it's all interwoven and it's moving. Everything's interwoven and nothing is stuck. Even if we think, wait, no, but I'm stuck, you're not. And so it's almost a paradox of our interwovenness. We are so fully embedded or secured in this interwovenness that we have no place to stand because we can't stand still. It is relationality through and through. And this relational nature of the cosmos gives us the complexity of non-linear and non-local relationships. That's really crazy. Now, we touch a little bit on non-linear, just the idea that, okay, you can't do ordinary old-school linear math. But the non-linear aspect means nature doesn't work by means of ordinary addition. Maybe that needs an example. Okay, so let's think of an example. Let's say that we have nine birds who want to fly 1,000 miles. They're going to migrate. Now, if we added up how much energy it would take for each bird to make the journey of a thousand miles, and then we multiplied that, so we said, oh, now how, much, how many calories is this bird going to use? How much energy will this bird burn? And we figure it out for the thousand mile journey. We say, okay, here's our number. And if we multiply that number by nine, we would fail to get the correct total of energy for those same nine birds if they fly together in formation. When birds fly together in formation, they create an ecology of flight. And the drag, the wind resistance, on the nine birds together is less than the drag on nine individual birds. And so the total energy they need drops. They create a collaborative synergy that emerges in their interwovenness and interdependence. So isn't that so cool? The energy needed for nine individual birds is greater than nine birds who created an ecology together, come together. They are more efficient. Now we should also note, in a practical, very practical sense, that the impermanence, precariousness, and uncertainty of our cosmos of our ecologies translates into risks, and the dominant culture seeks to mitigate those risks in relation to power and wealth in particular. That's just part of the game of the dominant culture. When massive businesses fail, well, the general population takes over their losses. We cover the risks, but we don't get bailed out in return, not generally speaking. And we saw this with, with, say, the 2007-8 crash. We see it again and again in different ways. We find an expectation that we cover our own risks along with the risks of massive corporations. When we fail, well, people think of us as deadbeats, as irresponsible, and so on. We can get buried in debt and guilt But we, the people, cover the risks of the corporations, not only in times of crisis, but also in ongoing ways. Through our taxes, we pay for research, we pay for roads, we pay for all manner of things, and the corporations, they get tax breaks, they get incentives, subsidies, and so on. I mean, can you imagine if the real cost of things were just in the things themselves? Cars would be exorbitantly expensive. Gas would be exorbitantly expensive. The iPhone exists only because of massive public investments in the technology needed to create it. And the big stores that ruin the downtown areas of small cities, they arrive on our tax dollars. Fossil fuel industry, the automotive industry, we built the roads for those cars to go on. Ford didn't build the roads. If we had to pay for the Ford car and Ford road altogether, that'd be a very different expense. Now, we can go on and on with these sorts of examples, but what we can recognize is that the wealthy, generally speaking, they want minimal risk. And when they face the reality of risk, they want us to bail them out. And this is not a thing where we're not trying to hate the rich. That's not what it is. It's about the structure of the ecology that we're embedded in right now. And it's an artificial ecology, not in attunement with how nature works. In general, a culture rooted in ignorance will activate unhealthy feedback loops of praise and blame. Now, we're going to get a little more clarity on what a feedback loop is later, but just want to say that to sustain itself, the system we have needs us to praise wealthy people for their wealth and any material success. And it needs us to blame poor people or anybody who has failed for their poverty and any apparent failings. But this flies in the face of reality. If precariousness, uncertainty, and nonlinearity belong to reality, then all our ventures depend in some measure on luck. And the matter comes to the degree of luck involved. And we find this demonstrated scientifically in a variety of ways, but we can have a hard time Accepting it. If you look in the transcript, I'll put a few links for some studies on this. But you can see that there's plenty of evidence that, for instance, the highest earning people in many cultures are not the most intelligent, uh, that there is a kind of delusion of meritocracy and a delusion of self made wealth, and that a wealth inequality follows from randomness in the system. So you can predict the kind of inequality we see on the basis of just accepting that there's randomness in the system. That's the easiest way to predict the inequality that we see is to just presume there's luck at work. And so it's a kind of Occam's razor. It's a very simple explanation. And let's just say, again, and we've tried to put this in, in, in other podcast episodes, acknowledging the crucial role of luck does not mean successful people never work hard. It means some people who failed worked just as hard and maybe even harder than many others who succeeded. I mean, James Brown may really have been the hardest working person in show business, and Duke Ellington was most certainly a singular musical genius, but neither of them can rival the success of Taylor Swift. And she may work pretty darn hard. But she also seems to be popular, mainly because she's popular, and not because of any peculiar quality of effort or genius. So I don't know that she works harder than James Brown, certainly She's not a greater genius than Duke Ellington. Taylor Swift doesn't have the voice of Whitney Houston. She isn't the lyricist Leonard Cohen was. She's not the musician or composer that Bach and Mozart were. And so we cannot reasonably claim that her income and fame, surpassing these other incredible figures, we can't claim that her success happened totally free of sheer luck. Many geniuses die poor, and many truly good human beings die in obscurity. And this has nothing to do with bashing Taylor Swift. I should probably emphasize that this subject isn't a digression. You might think, wait a minute, we thought we were talking about ecologies. Why are you talking about Taylor Swift? So maybe it will be a good idea... To save a few further thoughts for a set separate contemplation, so that we can understand a little more why that would be, why would it be important to think about such things? What does Taylor Swift have to do with ecological thinking? Well, I think more than we might at first realize. In any case, these are nuanced things to consider, and now you might also want to listen to episode forty-nine, which is "Love, Luck, and the True Wealth of Nations: Seeds of a Gaia Sienza." And that looks a little bit more into Luck and some of these other issues. And so, that actually, that is the third episode, that one forty nine is the third in a series, 47, 48, and 49, all actually consider an ecological view of a very big and famous study, the big Harvard study, the Grant study on adult development. Okay, now, we should maybe note another nuanced and intimately related issue here, namely that The precariousness and uncertainty of the cosmos may relate to a certain level of randomness or noise in the cosmos itself. Now, philosophically, people may differ on their sense of the role of randomness in our lives, but we have evidence that noise plays a role even in our thinking. It's a somewhat stunning finding that you can read about in the neuroscience literature. If You just look up noise and decision-making or noise and brain In general, we can say that randomness in the cosmos contributes to the impossibility of controlling our lives. If that's a feature of ecologies, we're never going to have them completely under control. And ecological thinking has to somehow face that. And in our contemplation of ecological thinking, we will understand potential randomness as a function of the precariousness and uncertainty of the cosmos itself, even if, and here's a wild thought, even if the interwovenness and wholeness mean that somehow or other, in some paradoxical fashion, nothing is fully random. Now, that is a super tricky metaphysical question. We're not going to go into that. We're going to take randomness and say, yes, it's there. And so there is a dimension of risk, there's a dimension of luck, and how do we face it and be honest about it? Okay, now, we should take a break. We have a lot more to consider and it's okay, we're, we're easing into this, and it takes a little while, you're going to be okay, and this is so important. So we've so far just defined an ecology, we've of course given a little framework of why are we thinking about philosophy, why does it matter, what is an ecology, we've begun to see that our definition has implications in it, implications about manipulation and control, that we can't do it. Implications about mind, that is, is imminent in all ecologies. And that the basic features of reality, the wholeness, interwovenness, and dynamism, they give rise to four characteristics. And we didn't get through all of them. We're going to pick them up next time. So next time, we're going to go over the definition again, and we're going to pick up our final characteristic, and we're then going to proceed from there. And I promise, every step we take is going to get a little clearer. And we'll continue to touch on these little examples, whether it's birds in flight, or deer in an ecology, or whatever it might be. We'll have little examples and little ways to think through to try to see ourselves differently. And this is so important, so I urge you, stay with it, even through the places that are confusing, because... As we go, it's going to get clearer, so it's okay that we find moments of saying, I'm not sure what's happening yet. Trust the process. And if you have questions, just send them in. Think about, what's a good question to ask here? What is really, where am I confused? And maybe it'll be answered in the next contemplation or two. And we'll be doing a few of these, so that's why I'm urging you encouraging you. You're doing great. Trust yourself, and trust that this is important. If we're really talking about ecologies, and if you are an ecology, and if you're interwoven in the ecologies of the world, this is our life together. And maybe in some ways our life is at stake, and we can help. We can live better. We can live more in attunement with spiritual and ecological reality. And that's the adventure we're taking. If it were so simple and easy, we wouldn't suffer and we wouldn't have the problems that we do individually and socially and culturally and planetarily. So stay with it for the benefit of all beings, including you. And until next time, this is Dr. Nikos, your friendly neighborhood soul doctor, reminding you that your soul and the soul of the world are not two things. Take good care of them.